All right. Good morning. Good morning. It is time for part two of the Gavin Castleton episode. Um, so good morning. It's Tuesday. I think it's, it's Cinco de Mayo right now. Um, so hopefully you guys are inside enjoying a margarita and maybe making some tacos or go out and buy some tacos from some from someplace. Um, but yeah, I haven't had a margarita in a very long time. Anyway, so happy single to Mayo, everyone. And I hope, uh, I hope you're all doing all right. I just wanted to take a little bit of time to talk about, uh, the people that have stuck, stuck it out and that have supported artists, um, and supported me specifically. I just want to, I haven't done this in a little while and I owe it to them. So, uh, the patrons, patrons of after the gig, I appreciate you guys so much, uh, for sticking with it and, um, being patient through the crisis and supporting, um, and continuing to support. I have some more stuff that's going to be coming out on the Patreon page soon. If you are not a patron and you want to check it out, you can go to patreon.com slash after the gig. Um, there's a bunch of different levels. You can get in at a low level, a high level, whatever. So, uh, check it out if you would like, but, um, these guys here, guys and gals have been, um, have been in there and part of that community. And I appreciate them so much. Uh, Adrian Townsend, Allie Mason, <clears throat> Alyssa Love, Barb Bergman, Bob Sterren, Carrie Beth Condry, Catherine Vare, Chris and Becky, uh, Becky Pietras, uh, Chris Bona, Chris Frappier, Crystal Lovett, David McCarthy, Don Shaw, Deirdre, Aaron Lloyd, Evan Sanders, uh, Heather Edmondson, Jeffrey Christofferson, uh, Jenny Godman, uh, Jessica Maxson, Jessica Whitehead, Katie Musselman, Kenzie, Carrie Phillips, Christina Johnson, Spillman, uh, Liz Taylor, Michael Gordy, Manette Dalal, Nicole Lavallee, Robbie, Robin Sterren, Sangita, Stacy Doses, and uh, Tim Bach. Thank you guys all so much for for supporting and being a part of uh, being a part of After the Gig and being a part of the community and helping keeping it going. Um, this has been really great, especially with episodes like this and last week and, and all the episodes in general, but being able to sit down with, with artists like this, uh, is really special and it's really special to me and, uh, to be able to, especially Gavin, cause like uncovering the, the history of like the Cranston and the Rhode Island music scene and seeing where that can take you, you know, guys like Dan Mills and guys like uh, Stevie Aiello, who now plays for 30 Seconds to Mars, just seeing where you can start. And if you believe and if you work hard at it, where you can end up, um, it's just really, really great, whether it's playing in front of tens of thousands of people or if it's releasing your own music to a rabid fan base or if it's just playing on a live stream or or. Um, playing your songs to a few people that matter most to you. Uh, there's lots and lots and lots of different possibilities and whatever you do, whether it's music or something else, I think you have to think that way and, uh, you have to work hard at it and all that good stuff. So, um, I think I'm just going to keep this pretty short and sweet. Uh, mostly is just a thank you. Happy Cinco de Mayo. 
and I hope we get the opportunity to see you soon. So this episode with Gavin, this is the part two of the two-part series. Um, Gavin in this part talks a lot about the early days of Groovis Malt and how that band operated and eventually where it changed and when Gavin went to go do his own thing and perform his own music and write his own songs. Um, I thought it was just very interesting. We, we get in a little bit more about the Monty R.I. reunion show and his experience in that. It's uh, it's just great. It, it I can't say it enough. It was a great uh, episode to be a part of. But other than that, let's get into it. If you have any questions, email afterthegigpod at gmail.com. Like I said before, check out the Patreon at patreon.com slash afterthegig. Uh, I'll be live streaming and all that good stuff. So check that out whenever that happens. So I got nothing else to say. I'm going to get going. Here is Mr. Gavin Castleton, part two. Chin up, boss. Someone's going to come along and love you big. You still got it, horse. It's not time to run and get that weak. You're not a silver bag yet. You're still a beer out, eh? You got the best digestion. Got the right escape for you Stay pro, son No one ever won the game quite like this and Don't stress, hun You don't wanna be the one to break that wrist You're not a rat in a maze You got the end in sight You're not a dove in a cage More like a chicken in So we were so already playing music since we were little And then, but you know you keep, As you're moving up the public school ladder You keep there's more and more kids in your class and so you just keep meeting more and more musicians yeah yeah i think we met the drummer and the guitarist in school and then the bassist yeah in cranston east yeah because that was like i remember that time even just you know playing that that reunion show on saturday it's like you realize oh man there's so many musical people that have been doing it for a long time out of that particular area that circle yeah yeah and even like my mom teaches at east now and, oh yeah yeah and she um and she says like there's always musical kids there's like huh. it's just constantly kept going i don't know if that's because of like mark Colazzi or arthur mm-hmm. montanaro or is he still teaching there i think he's like the um i don't think he's the band director anymore i think he's like the regional music oh, director wow. person i could be wrong though but he and also does like, a choral teacher there um mr lapore yeah mr lapore i know mr teacher at the time when i was in high yeah. school when i was in high school he was the choral teacher were you in chorus in high school yeah yeah so briefly i got thrown out actually. you got thrown out yeah <laughs> would you get thrown out for? yeah um i was a real jerk i just <laughs> uh i was just really unruly in kind of a safe way, like not in like a, you know, I used to do cocaine right before a, a competition. and But it was more like, um, more like you couldn't get me to stop talking or okay. like I would uh, hide someone's thing. You know, just the kind of stuff that's really annoying when you're trying to yeah make this high school choir sound like a college choir, which he was pretty good at. And yeah. um and a lot of stuff. I don't know. I was the only one in that in that choir that could play the piano. So I would sometimes I think accompany us, not like for concerts though, but but and that only got me so far with him. 
I think. But I think I'm just trying to remember if he taught at Park View before Cranston East. He might have been the Park View and then maybe moved on to Cranston East. I think he was the Park View Junior High chorus. Mm. And so it would have yes, that's right. And so it was my seventh grade. It was my seventh grade I was in the chorus and um we had a competition in Montreal. We went up there. It was one of those like you have three parents that are gonna be the um Yeah. I wouldn't want to be chaperones. I wouldn't want to be those no, parents. You've got all these <laughs> horny young kids, you know, <laughs> that you gotta keep in their own hotel rooms or whatever was going on. I don't know. But like um <clears throat> but I must have behaved so poorly that right when we got home, I got the phone call that was like, We're not gonna be having you back next year. <laughs> <laughs> it's like we're all set. Yeah. It was it's been nice. Yeah. Um which was pretty rough, but um, but he made the right choice <laughs> for sure in removing me from the picture. It was particularly rough because my friends got to stay in the chorus, one of which was one of the guys okay. from Gruber Small. Okay. was still in the chorus, which I think I was probably resentful of and a little embarrassed about and whatever, but, you know, that I wasn't in the cool kids club anymore as far as the chorus was concerned. Yeah, yeah. They were kind of elite back then because we were winning these competitions that were up against like um maybe older people or something and we they, it was okay. a pretty good chorus for for us uh junior high chorus like yeah. the sound was pretty good when did like the groovis malt stuff start that was in in fact our first big show was the battle of the bands at cranston east okay and because we won the giant 40 dollar check <laughs> Like they handed us, they handed yeah. you a giant check. But to be actually, to be honest, I wasn't there when they won. I so actually, I guess I wasn't there in the formation of it. It was one of those things where you know, there's five to maybe seven kids in school that want to play rock music or yeah. something, and they just sort of it's a little incestuous. Like they each are forming their own bands and changing their band name every week and mm -hmm. like maybe joining another band or if they got in a fight with their friend, they're now in the other band. Now they're in the other you know band. what I mean? And so, but so I don't think it was called Groovis Malt in that moment. It was something else. And maybe it was only three of the four guys and some other dude who ended up in the rival band or whatever. But yeah. um, because we, some of us came out of a jazz band side project. We were, I wasn't in jazz band, but two of the guys were, and then I started a band, so we were that, and we were starting to play jazzy funk stuff. Yeah, because the music wasn't like, you know, your regular four four rock band. It was of Groove's it, it was out. It was out there. Like eventually, so that came it was. from like kind of a jazzier background. That you, Some of us, the sound that you eventually became that might have been that when we were yeah. when we were in you know in seventh grade and eighth grade, we're trying to do. Uh, something between probably beastie boys and red hot chili peppers or something you yeah know, or i don't know like we're just starting to those bands are just getting really big and important to us and nirvana's happening in those bands so we're getting influenced by that like i can still remember i can place some things because <laughs> i remember at the big um not battle of the bands but they did a talent show yeah. cranston east and one of the bands did a cover of Pearl Jam's Black, which was probably at that time my favorite song. Yeah. And he didn't know the words to it. And so he, I still can remember that helps me put like a time frame to like, okay, yeah, Pearl Jam 10 had just come out and was a really big deal. Yeah. Because it was a pretty ballsy thing for them to do that song because it was a big <clears> song. And yeah. And the dude had to do it like, for like the whole <laughs> the song. Whole 
because he didn't know the literal lyrics because they weren't really written in the liner notes. Became like a caricature of itself. Yeah. And I, as a huge fan of that song, was like, this is wrong. You know, I got this bullshit. Yeah. I felt like, he doesn't know the lyrics. I know the lyrics, you know. And I'd still remember because it's a slow, long song. Yeah. Him just not articulating a single word like this whole time. Yeah. But anyway, the, the, that band came out of two guys from jazz band and then I formed this project and then we did this competition. And then eventually you get the, this other guy to sit in on congas or something. And then you have your guitar player from this rock thing. And now the sound is, now it's not that project. It's something else. It's starting to become something else. Yeah. And you've got the battle of the bands and we got to beat this other band. So we have to get a name. So we got a name and then we played that and we won. And all of a sudden, um, but I wasn't there. I left that school um, halfway through my senior year. No, I left that school on my senior year and mm. I moved to Portland, Oregon and started a different band there. And we were in touch and I really just wanted to go back to Rhode Island and get back to this new band that really only played one show yeah. and had three songs. Just for time frame, like what what year is that? that You're talking you 95. No, no, 94. No. 94, I, 95, 95, we did our first tape. Okay. In 95, we did a tape. A but you weren't a senior in high school in 95, were No, you? 96, I was a senior. Okay. So I'm wrong. I think the band started... Actually, Groovus Malt formed in 95 Okay. and did this tape. And then I moved away in 96, probably, or the end of 95. I went to the West Coast. Yeah. Met a whole different circle of musicians, did high school there, blah, blah, blah. Really just wanted to get back. And then... Was that a family thing? That yeah. You, okay. My mom just moved us. Oh, okay. And um, it was fairly traumatic to have to leave your senior year. Yeah, it sounds year. like, especially, you know, you've been in high school for three years already, yeah. senior year, all your friends With all the same people, you know, it's Cranston, so it's the same exact people all from the same fifth people. grade up. Yeah, you're yeah, still And second grade and fourth grade up, yeah. in a way. It's not like you're moving a town over, you're moving yeah. to another coast. Yeah, and there's no internet either. So. Oh my God, yeah. yeah. In fact, I met the internet in 95 or 96, I saw my yeah. first internet, you know what I mean? Yeah. Um, and it's not like you had emails, so that's not even how you communicate with your friends. Yeah. But the band is like sending me cassette tapes of like a practice they did, and I'm listening to it. Yeah. And I'm sending them cassettes of my new band and stuff. Hmm. And we're talking about how I need to come home and all this stuff. Yeah. So we do this tape. I move out there. They do the Battle of the Bands, and they report back via postal letter. <laughs> We won the Battle of the Bands. Here's a photo of the $40 check. We're on our way. This is going to be huge. You need to come home or whatever. Yeah. I'm totally exaggerating probably how it went, but that's, I remember that was a slick victory. And um, yeah, but that's the way you felt when you were doing it. You know, obviously it's like a, it's a big deal. Yeah. Big deal. And the bigger deal was (laughs) that their parents had gathered and each chipped in $25 to get a band space at Hathaway in Providence. And a band to have its own band space for the first time was like an insane thing. Yeah. So you're not in someone's parents' basement. Yeah. yeah. And it, you know, and so in 96, we're all in senior year. I do a half year in Portland, finish high school early, like double all my classes so I can leave. Mm -hmm. And then, and I have a band out there and I record my own tapes and I'm, so I'm starting to learn recording and engineering kind of stuff. Just all via having like borrowing the gear and then playing with it till I can understand. Yeah. So not really formalized or anything, but, and then I do finish and I got good enough grades. And my mom said, if you can get straight A's, you can go back. Cause she was sure I wouldn't be able to do it. And then I, <laughs> and then I did. And so she had to let me go, but I was, I was um, applying to colleges and stuff. So at the same time, there's this whole big question of 
are we going to college or not as a group? Yeah. You know, is everyone going to go to a college? And so that, that decision was kind of, was it largely based on what everyone else in the group did? Or was that like you had your, your own reach schools, you had a place that you wanted to go. And then this was also just kind of what was happening. I think none of us wanted to go. None of you wanted it to go. was, can we convince our parents to let us not go? Gotcha. But it was also some of us, at least, especially my parents who were both academics were like, you have to at least apply. And I mean, mm -hmm. they were really hoping I would at least consider things. Gotcha. And so I did. Gotcha. And I did tour colleges and I did um, a, a very pivotal thing kind of happened at Cornish in Seattle. Um, but I feel like I'm skipping something that may or may not be integral to the story. But I can't. Yeah. Before that, before the big college question. I finished school early, I came back, and then Groovis Malt is actually playing. And that's really Groovis Malt for the first time. Gotcha. Not the form, I mean, you know, over the years, personnel probably changed and stuff. But fundamentally, we're calling ourselves that we have a band space, we have a logo, and yeah. we have more than three songs. We have like seven songs or whatever. Yeah, yeah. You know, they're all garbage, but we have seven <laughs> songs. And so we're, um, and we're, and we're pretty serious. Like, we're rehearsing a lot, but we are also have a band space. So that means we can hang out and show it right. off and like, you know, go there after school and skate outside and all these stupid yeah. things. You have there. your own. Yeah. And that kind of puts us on a path. And so we start doing that and we start and we record our second tape and it's a really, um, scary, nervous, um, costly endeavor. It costs a whole $600 and we were super stressed because we had just been able to save this money. Where did you record that? We recorded it at a place called Diva Studios, which became really legendary in our, um, circle and well in our history it was okay. a really integral building important piece of our life because um for me personally the guy who engineered it became one of my best friends still i was just at his house last night that's where oh, it just came okay. from um and he uh, he's a big um general contractor here in rhode island he flips a lot of these old buildings and okay. does really amazing stuff with his crew of people and he's this awesome musician artist and all this stuff and interesting riz grad and like all this stuff um he was 10 years older than this but he's always been like my brother uncle kind of yeah from the moment we recorded this tape we met him playing a show in the building that had fort thunder in it so it's the building across from monahassan mill down in um eagle square oh yeah they, eagle square they kind mm. of beat it up and turn it into um, like staples or something, you know, like yeah. it became this other thing. But at the time you had this building full of artists doing crazy stuff in these really low rent um, buildings where they're not supposed to be living. And yeah. Diva Studios was one of those, this beautiful loft. Just some of the best stuff happens. Yeah. <laughs> it, was, it was just really focused creativity and, um, and it was this studio that Dave Stem had built there that we were recording our first day. So this, is, this was our first, like, real. The other thing was our bassist cousin. He had a six-track, so we made a five-song tape. And okay. it sounded like trash and yeah. whatever, right? And you're like, this we, have, was like, we have to scratch some money up. And yeah, this is quarter-inch reels, and we have a whole 16 tracks to play with. And there are even microphones there, you know, it was like, this yeah. is a thing. That's a big, yeah, it's yeah. also a big deal. It felt like a big deal, and yeah. we had to, but we were really nervous because we'd only saved up this certain amount of money, and, you know, I don't know, it was ridiculous, but we, so. <laughs> now you we, can do it in, like, you know. Yeah, whatever, yeah. In, in your living room. Yeah, for free, all the time. It'll sound way better than anything that you could do, but, so we were kind of forming, you know, like we were playing a couple of shows. Okay. Not, we were playing shows at the living room. We were slamming shows at the living room with hundreds of kids, maybe 200 kids. Mm. 
I was just telling a story to someone else last night. The living room repeatedly took advantage of us. They would pay us like $20 and we would sell out these rooms or pack these rooms. And, and you don't know any better because you want to get out there and play. I was telling this friend just the other day that they gave us, their excuse was, um, we, your fans got too drunk. These are 18-year-old high school kids. Your fans got too drunk at the show and they tried to steal our cigarette machine so we can only give you guys $25 tonight. <laughs> Like the line of logic to that <laughs> comment is so crazy. And yet, yeah, as 18 year old kids that are just can't believe we're playing the living like, room. Like, oh my God, I can't believe they we're almost so stole sorry the about our friends. Machine. Like, yeah. none of that story makes any sense. That doesn't make any sense. You illegally sold a room full of minors alcohol, and then you're <laughs> yeah. blaming us for what they did to a cigarette machine. It's like, I think the part of that sentence that <laughs> makes more sense or that works in our favor is the fact that you sold them beer. Yeah. So maybe yeah, we maybe, up that guarantee yeah. a little bit. <laughs> and unfortunately, we were, you know, this was an, an important room for us to break into or whatever. Yeah. It's garbage. And I never, um, while, while that room was run by Randy, I he took advantage of a lot of young artists. He promised us fake studio time for a studio they were building. Like, that's yeah. another show we did for you free. You know, I actually heard Constantly about that rumor that they... The studio were, room? Yeah, the studio room. Yeah, I think that, it went on for a long time. You know, just that whole uh, aura around the living room and playing the living yeah. room was like a big deal. And I yeah. remember the first time that I got in there and played there, I was like, what the fuck? Like, it's a carpeted bathroom. This is terrible. <laughs> yeah. This is the worst. Yeah. And But I imagined back... Well, we had seen these massive bands play there. Yeah. So you felt like I'm playing in the room where... You know, Nirvana just played. Red Hot yeah. Chili Peppers played there. Yeah. You know what I mean? You, and Club Babyhead is the more legitimate, harder to get into room. It's smaller. Yeah, but yeah, like, yeah, yeah. We were also trying to get in there. You know, I actually remember. Now that I think about it, there was so the first time when we packed that room out with it was all our high school friends. So that's mm -hmm. why you, they're not real fans, you know. Right. But but it was this big thing, and we were super excited, and we got all these people, and we promoted so hard. It was a Tuesday night, probably. You know, like some garbage night. So they made out, living made out like bandits with that yeah. kind of situation. And then the next time we played there, that was when he did the like, guys, let me show you something. And he like walked us in the back room. And now I can actually, this is the first time I'm remembering this. He opened this door and it was filled with trash. <laughs> it was just a room full of broken furniture and trash. He's like, you know what this is going to be? And we're like, no, what? He's like, this is going to be a studio. And I'd like to offer you guys free time in this studio but unfortunately tonight i can only give you guys 20 dollars or whatever you know what i mean like oh it was this funny bait and switch this of like con artist yeah total connors and i'm thinking back i'm like i remember seeing a room full of garbage like that's so funny like why would you even use that as your prop to try and trick these kids into this stuff yeah and maybe he believed what he was saying i don't know maybe but like, he probably did he might have. Because he, he probably he, told so many people, yeah. so many bands that same yeah. story, showed so many people that closet <laughs> filled with garbage. And we totally bought it, though. We're like, oh, studios. You know, like, we're like, that's crazy. Because studio time was what we were trying to reach eventually. Yeah. You know? We knew that that's what you had to get. I mean, you had to get to. But What was the name of the tape that you guys recorded, the $600 um, tape? It was called, oh, oh the $600 tape was yeah, the Breakfast All Day. Okay. That's our first real recording. It's the first thing we sold. It was put us on the map in Cranston. As far as put us I, on the Cranston map. Yeah, put us on the Cranston map because when you're in a high school and you can sell 400 copies of a cassette, everybody actually does know. Yeah. And it really solidified these songs to the point where now we can play shows and people are going to yell out those songs. Yeah. You know, so we now have these six 
horrible songs that we can that are but they're a little sticky too like i i think if i could objectively listen to them and let go of all the puberty of them i could also be like yeah but there's some hook in there in a way like i get why a bunch of high school kids that there can say this is my friend's band could remember these songs well a lot of that is cartoony in a way yeah true the way we were so like those ideas that you had when when you're doing that thing those you know some interesting stuff and looking back on it now you're probably like wow i can't believe i yeah we thought of things that way yeah i do have that feeling i can appreciate more some good ideas they're always diamonds in the rough it's always like oh if we had just had a more mature outlook and could extract because that one riff or this one rhythm or this one lyric that's actually kind of cool and interesting that we yeah. came up with it, we just ruined it, or we just covered it too we much. We took because, it and didn't develop yeah, it yeah, yeah. into like a that's one That's a better thing. way of putting it, for yeah. sure. Um, I mean, that's that's a lot of the time. I think that's true of most people when they look back on their... Yeah. That's an issue that years, I definitely you know? had. I would take, I would have like one little sliver of a good idea, yeah. and then be like, okay, that's that. Let's come up with another one and another one, and yeah. then you put them all in, this, in one place where they're not all supposed to yes. be. But I don't know, it's... Yeah, that's interesting. I don't think we had the ability yet. That's that's a really good way of describing the creative process at that age is like, and that's what our songs would end up being part, 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 part. That's how we'd yeah. say it, part, 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 part. Yeah. But we, no one would go, we need kind of like a callback or we need to take a theme and develop it or we need to, because we didn't really write from a live jam perspective where maybe... If you were really improvising on the fly, you, you didn't might do a night. That's that's interesting to no, me. No, no, I think it was like riff based. You okay. know what I mean? Like someone would go, and then you're like, that's crazy. Let's do it. Yeah. And then the drill will play a riff, and then you're like, okay. And then there's a different riff, and you just like this. Yeah. It's not now, okay, now do that. Now let's add another counterpoint to that and now let's add a different rhythm variation and now let's add a different melody on top it wasn't mm-hmm. like that it was like that's a part and it sounds cool here's a whole different here's part that also sounds cool you you can come up with parts yeah but you can't make them relate to each other very well yeah and so our music became collage based in that way for a long time in yeah. fact still into the senior years of the band i would say it was a little too collage for like mature composition mm. in, a, in a way. So most of it, um, not all of it, like it just depended on who wrote it and on the, our process for writing changed every album. Okay. We didn't ever, um, somewhat consciously, it was like, now was, we do it like this. Was that where some of the like concept writing came out? Cause we'll get into that with your own stuff. But. Yeah. Um, a little bit, but the way that we, we didn't write conceptual albums the way that you are supposed to write them, okay. really, in the way that would make any sense. And we didn't, which just leads me to kind of a bigger general statement if I'm asked to comment on like Groove is Small as an artistic entity, was like, the reason that our music ended up the way it is, I don't even know if the rest of the guys would agree with me on this, this is my personal opinion, but mm-hmm. is that we kind of did... Well, and actually, this is true of our economic career. This is true of like <laughs> our existence as friends. In a way, it's like we did everything wrong, but like <laughs> in in a way that didn't kill us, and also um, in a way that produced some interesting results. Okay, you know what I'm saying? Yeah. It was like, and and I really don't mean that as a completely derogatory thing. I just mean that um, 
we did it. We learned everything just by doing it and trying to figure it out. We didn't, weren't formalized. Yeah, okay. And we didn't have let anyone show us how to do stuff. We didn't work with producers. Yeah, we just didn't have a roadmap for anything, even down to how do you tour? How do you afford a vehicle? How mm -hmm. do you do these promotional thing how do you do marketing none of that there was no prescription we didn't have an internet to work with we didn't know how to do any of it and we didn't ask we yeah. just kept and we didn't know how to write songs so we had these problems or you had these problems and then all right how are we gonna yeah solve them and so the, our solutions are all a little macgyvery <laughs> and a little tape and gum you know what i mean and like our and our music is a little that too like you what you hear in the band is a collision of six people. It's not, um, okay. and it's a collision of six people in a vacuum. Um, at a time when, um, you know, their interests in music are exploding. So you also have six people with wide interests, each of them mm -hmm. in music, all colliding into this thing and having a, f I think, I hope the other guys would agree with me, a fairly democratic creative process. Mm. Probably. It's probably the democracy of the creative process that made the songs less coherent and less cohesive and more abs more strange in their composition. Okay, it's because you had all these different ideas going. And yeah, and you and we didn't and we didn't until Simon our album in two thousand three. Until that record, we didn't allow one person to make executive decisions about any of the songs. So. As opposed to, say, the deer hunter that I play in, where there's one person at the helm that defines everything. Yeah. And that's the source of truth, and that's the person that decides. Right. It, it, so the songs have this cohesive, because they come from one mind. Right. This was six minds all working in their own directions. And I don't think... I, 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 the, my only hesitation is it's very common for... <clears throat> a creatively dominant person to not realize they're dominating the situation. Okay. So it's possible that I was more controlling than I'm realizing. And so if you ask one of the guys, how'd you feel? Was it a very democratic process? And I go, no, Gavin would You're like, Gavin's full of shit. Yeah. He was constantly <laughs> passive aggressively defining the song or something. I don't know. I don't think so. Um, Cause I never felt creatively fully fulfilled. Like this is exactly what I, what in the, the other side effect of making music in that way, in a mm -hmm. super democratic way. But when you're all like kind of shooting out in your own directions, musically, not, well, we, some, something has to bring it all together or else nothing would like get done. Right. Yeah. I guess I just mean that you could come up with a part, right. That is clearly wants to be, uh, for a dumb example, but clearly wants to be bluegrass, okay, whatever. Yeah. And then in that that band, the drummer could just play a metal beat, and you're like, okay, like that's what we're doing, <laughs> I guess. Like, there's no, you don't get to say, no, I'm really hearing bluegrass, and that is more likely to happen because he's listening to metal while you're listening to bluegrass, right? Okay, and, I and, mean that makes perfect sense to yeah, me. Yeah, and so it's very different. It's the polar opposite of Ibu Gogo, my band right after that, which is half of the members of Group Small, where instinctually everybody hears and goes to the same place mm -hmm. in the part. It's the funny thing is the music is very erratic and crazy, but creatively, we never had a situation where somebody wrote a part and it went in a direction that they really it didn't make sense to that person. Interesting. It was we write a part, it, the, the erratic nature of that music and the wide range that it covers had more to do with 
the the inspirations we were drawing from but we would all three of us draw from them together okay that's the difference and so the songs and the songs are written way more jam based okay you just play it that's a whole different compositional process very very different in that band than group of small in group of small somebody might bring a riff and then you might start playing with it this guy comes up the thing then there's a different part you marry them and the weirdest part of the process is that the poor vocalist brendan has to graft on lyricism on top of the weirdest song structures yeah. ever and that's, he was that's a that's really a challenge good at doing that's, it. That's a really super that's weird. A, yeah. yeah. So we never were a lyric driven band as far as Brendan never came and said like very rarely there might have been one or two songs but I but very rarely there was not the standard way that you write solid songs especially if they're going to be poppy is somebody sits down with a guitar or piano and voice and they write a song in the, in the top line and they sing it and then the band arranges around that. Right. We were never did that. And we were the total opposite. It was, here's the weirdest structure that we've cobbled together of all these random ideas, mm-hmm. sometimes competing, and at various times, one guy maybe not even knowing what other people in the band are playing mm. and just coming up with his weird interpretation of what should happen there. And then we record that, hand it to the singer and go, good luck. And he comes back with a fairly coherent, lyrically abstract, but fairly coherent melodic ideas and then we all adapt a little bit to it and as we got older we would be willing more to adapt to it and say okay you want the verse longer but when we were younger no that's the part (laughs) so this is the part yeah yeah make it work yeah we just and he was really good at that um but it is i I never i would hate to write like that like it's it's really not and it doesn't produce it doesn't produce super lyric driven stuff it makes him have to work even harder to drive like a lyrical theme mm-hmm. and he has to do it retroactively and graft it on to this other thing so we've already defined the emotion of the song right but the music is emotionally is very confusing as well mm. it's not very emotional music in a lot of ways it's acrobatic or, or it's um well it goes it, you know, like you said i mean it goes from like one thing to the other yeah. acrobatic is a great way to, yeah. to describe it yeah, my dad called it athletic once or something. He no, yeah. he said he loved watching Ibu Gogo because we were so athletic. Yeah, well, I mean, was, you're all like kind of reacting to each other, and like I like, I really like that. Um, what's the name of the the first Ibu Gogo uh, album? Uh, Chase scenes one to fourteen. Yeah, and then there's Worlds is is a more like official looking record, but okay, Chase scenes is a little more demo-y. Yeah, well, I, I just remember there being like samples and stuff in in uh, in chasing. Maybe you might be thinking know. of something. You might be thinking of my solo records. I could be. Those are very sample based. Yeah, I could be. Yeah, because I, I feel mine are like, very computery, and then I feel like I found some of them all at the same time. Yeah, and then maybe I kind of like. Yeah, it's possible. Kind of we, mesh, I was doing together. my solo stuff at the same time as Ibu Gogo was doing stuff. All right, yeah, so that, we that's kind of what was going on in my brain. They were. There were two sides of what I loved. Okay, you know? yeah. Ibu Gogo was like all the best of Groove Small, but like in this instrumental band. Yeah, with really really cohesive fun writing, and then my stuff was very selfish and like um, self absorbed electronic music, and I'm starting to play with technology a lot. Gotcha. Very different. Now you said like things changed when you guys wrote Simon a bit. Just that Simon was a different each album is a different way of writing like we would change our approach and simon was the first album we said what if we do a record what if we write songs where each person gets veto power in a song Mm. and and in some cases people brought whole songs to the band Mm. everyone will still add their flavors so it's not it's not that like 
un, uh, undemocratic, but it was we'd let people take the helm of songs. And we would actually, for the most part, um, what's the word? Um, oh, man. The word escapes me, but like bow to their opinion over it. So you would say, is this cool that I'm doing this? Is mm -hmm. this all right? Is this what you had in mind? Yeah. Those words were not something we did in Group of Small until that, that record for the most part. I'm exaggerating a little, but like for the most part, that we, you let someone follow an idea beginning to end. And some guys That's in true. the band who wrote less um, wouldn't be as you know, have as many ideas. They might say, I just do what you think. And some guys in the band, like uh, Scott, it was the first time he really took the Hellman songs, the drummer, and he um, he might have just written rhythms, you know what yeah. I mean? And be like, I want these ideas in there. And then we might have written the chords or something. Yeah. So it didn't mean that they were all, everyone brought melody, harmony, rhythm, and top line or anything like that. And lyrically, Brendan still did most of the work there. But, yeah. Um, A lot of that makes sense with Scott because, like, I remember listening to his playing. I was like, how did, how did like this happen <laughs> yeah. in the course of this song? And it makes a lot more sense knowing that he had a specific thing he wanted to do. And then the song kind of got built yeah. around it or the part got built around it. A lot it. of rhythm stuff in our music came from very strange reasoning or like yeah. very strange processes. And processes even the sound itself, like, you know, the dry drums and the. Yeah. Things like that, I was like super into at that time. Our sounds, our sounds changed with each record because our recording process changed dramatically. Simon yeah. was also the first record we paid a lot of money to work in a really good studio. Yeah, the Soundstation Seven in Province was yeah. one of the more legit studios, and we had a really good engineer. And we we actually, it was the first time someone really taught us like you should get new drum heads before you record, <laughs> and then you should tune those drums <laughs> before you record, and like. I still remember uh, Scott's pedal squeaking in a song and him, Rob, stopping the process and going, hold on, let's go get some WD-40. Yeah. And me going, what? Like, Wh why, why? Why did we stop? Yeah, I was just so confused. Like, well, it can, it'll just be in the mix. Like, I not that I thought it wouldn't be there, but it didn't occur to me to fix problems before you yeah. record them. I was just like... Yeah. And it was so rational. He would have his tech go out and move a drum because it was squeaking on the thing. But yep. before that, we just didn't have that level of attention to detail. Well, the concept of getting things to sound good before yeah. they hit the mics. Yeah. Yeah. Definitely didn't comes, occur to us. No, but it definitely comes later Yeah, in the course of like, you know, I think a musician's growth. Yeah. Because I, I never thought of that. It I was always like, engineer. oh, they'll just, they'll fix it back <laughs> there. It'll, they'll make it sound good. But yeah. if you make it sound good beforehand, it makes their job. I think we were also so used easier. to our, our stuff sounding. Like we never mm. could afford good gear ever. Yeah. We always had crappy gear. Yeah. I especially had crappy gear. And our drum set was usually pretty crappy. Yeah. And then that, I remember at that session too, him swapping out tons with ones they had in the house. And me yeah. thinking how weird that was. I was like, this kit looks so weird. That's a different floor tone. But yeah. he was actually trying to get good sounding drums. Right. It just didn't occur to us that you could even do that. Right. And so, so Simon is our best sounding record engineering. I don't know if fans would necessarily agree, but as a, from a technical engineering standpoint, it's engineered so much better than everything else yeah. we were capable of doing. Did you guys make anything else after that? Yeah, then Maximum Unicorn was after that. And, That's right. And yeah. we did that ourselves um, 
within our own studio. It was a studio that Justin had built in Fall River. Okay. And so it was not a studio, 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 but it was a dedicated room where they were trying to track other bands. So we, but we had access to that and we recorded. So we didn't have the resources of a sound station set. We didn't have the mic selection, the preamps or all that for the yeah. most part. And we recorded in like sonar, but we, um, and we're a sound station, we're on reels and pro tools. Yeah. Um, two inch reels maybe. But, that and that the writing process for that one was completely different than Simon too. That's what I mean. Like every single one, the writing process changed dramatically. Simon's just the only one where we did it the closest to a traditional setting where one guy sees his song through and can actually yeah. tell you that's not what I had in mind and you have to listen yeah. to that and like change it. Um, most of the time. I don't know if again, I'm trying to not have a blind spot of like, yeah, but I was pretty controlling of a person, so is it possible that People wanted me to change an I'm idea, just, and I passive-aggressively did not. I don't know. I'm just know. trying to imagine, like, it just it <laughs> seems like things went really smoothly. I'm just trying to... With Im the band? Yeah. No. Uh, yeah, I'm trying <laughs> to imagine the points where it was like, when did it come to a head, and, like, how... Like, were, were, were you, like, fighting for parts or fighting for sections, and, like... Because yeah, it, it, I, I think a good way of describing it, Drew Zemel, is, like... a. 10-year fight. 10-year <laughs> fight, okay. Yeah, maybe. That's another piece of the, the collision of these people. I think what I mean that, I mean that from their tastes and from their objectives of what, of mu their musical objectives, but mm -hmm. also as people, we were really rough people with each other. And um, in a way, I mean, we're also, we were also best friends because you're in war together, but yeah. we were so unkind to each other. <laughs> and with me at the forefront of that, like me as the most poisonous person potentially in the group. Think so? Yeah, I think so. Um, I don't know that I'd love to hear it confirmed by everyone. Again, <laughs> but if I'm trying to be reflective and fair, I definitely brought a very like hard to deal with personality mm -hmm. to the table. And some of the guys in the band were actually fairly gentle people. Yeah. Initially, you don't stay that way when you're in a pack of animals that are all animals. Yeah, and you you're know? traveling around the country. Yeah. yeah. Eating ramen only, making no money whatsoever. And we never paid ourselves the entire time in yeah. the band for 10 years. No one got paid. Wow. That's the kind of band we were. And I was spending that money on what I thought we needed to do it with. Yeah. Promotional stuff, street teams, you know touring expenses, buying a huge bus that tanked our finances, stuff like that. But it was 96 we made that tape, and we were on the map at that point. We probably did, in fact, I have records somewhere that show we probably did 12 shows in Providence that year. and Maybe we, we played our first out-of-state show in Andover, Massachusetts that mm. year with this band, this youth center that was like a really big deal to us. And we started playing with this band from Boston called Fatbag a lot more that was really really instrumental in our development as mm -hmm. musicians because they were these Berkeley heavy hitters that now play in Lettuce and like um, Soul Live and um, you know they're just these monster players oh really back like, then were monster players like, to us which guys like Kraz um, Adam Shmirnov Kraz um, Deitch um, Sam Kinninger um, I'm trying to think of who's in the band because they had a lineup change periodically and they had a, their their own trajectory was pretty yeah. wild but they was um uh not alan evans he's the drummer he's a drummer he so wasn't alive. in he was probably in that crew but we didn't play with him but his brother um yeah neil yeah we didn't i mean we played with soul live once or twice okay but 
Fabag took us under their wing for a full year or two. That's interesting. I never, I never knew a that. Shows all around New England. Well, we were this. That's cool. If I'm being cynical, we were a band they could pay next to nothing, and oh, and we would bring these young fans that they weren't yeah. connecting with as initially. Yeah. And music wise, we were in the same group, but we also could never give them a run for their money as far yeah. as being this monster funk band that could play these nasty grooves. But we, well, learned, you guys were probably an interesting group of dudes to be around. They probably but didn't, didn't mind really having you hang around. out with them because they were okay. kind of these older, um, heavy weed smoking dudes. Yeah, and and well learned like jazz knowledge Berkeley students, and we were ragtag and kind of weird and wacky, and yeah. and our sense of humor was very different. Probably, I mean, we were really. I don't mean like they avoided us. I just mean like we were our thing and they were theirs. It was more yeah. like we would watch them play after us go home feeling horrible, pull our bootstraps up, yeah. try to integrate as many of their ideas as we could into what we were doing, yeah. hear these rhythm ideas. I mean, we wouldn't have realized that you should synchronize kick drum with bass drum stuff if we hadn't had them beat us over the head with it every night yeah. because their syncopation was so good and their um, their ability to lock in these grooves, their rhythm section grooves made ours look hilarious. And so we started understanding these relationships between the instruments a lot better okay so we were getting a free education almost yeah and that that probably probably made a pretty quick development after that like we must have evolved our most in that block of time because of this this band playing watching adam deitch playing his drums dramatically changed the way our expectations of scott yeah we're like you have to play like that now yeah you have to not put snare between every subdivision or something like he was playing more from a marching band background initially or and we were really just everyone's just exploring what they thought the right way to do their instrument was but in a very un- informal way and then you watch adam play and you hear the result of this band locking together as a group yep. and all of us have realized we need to dial it in a lot more. yeah we're like oh this is what's possible yeah it I sounds think, yeah. so much better when you normalize certain elements, but we didn't. We also understood that they were um, not to insult the man at all because they were phenomenal, but that they were creatively predictable and a little bit okay. um, vanilla. In that, in that, we had we wanted a wider palette for sure. We were more interested in in we weren't. They were more interested in setting up a nice experience for their audience yep. and having like a sick groove and then shredding solos over it and yep. enjoying their musical interaction with each other. We were interested in compositionally writing strange music. Yeah. You know? And we thought it was funny to set up a nice group and then ruin it. That yeah. to us that was amusing. <laughs> and we and we refused <laughs> to like a funny way to put it yeah, and ruin it. We that in my opinion was because of Mr. Bungle's influence on our music, because yeah. they delighted in doing that over and over again, and we were aware of that, and we thought that they were just the most incredible band. And yeah. so it infected the way... And, you know, punk and then Nirvana and um, the early string of alternative rock bands were also had a big sort of fuck you to your audience vibe about them that we inherited. And it was very different than the jam band scene that we would find ourselves swerving into that Fatbag could dominate, where you're there to please that audience and smoke weed and make some money and enjoy yourselves and jam and solo. Yeah, And so we were the collision of those two worlds. And so we didn't fit in any of the worlds. Also, musically, we were so different than Monty as a good example of like a band that 
kept swerving into scenes and never making any sense in the scene. So we might have ska horns in two parts of our songs. So then we end up playing on these ska shows and nobody understands why. Yeah, and then you're like... Yeah, and the band is... There was nothing... If there's something that we should be proud of, it's that we we didn't adapt like to a scene and we didn't and there wasn't one to support us there yeah. were a lot of bands in providence that started coming up that were doing funk hip-hop stuff yep and as soon as that was happening we did not want to be around it like yeah. we didn't we didn't like playing in those circumstances we didn't like being coupled in that so we started writing heavier music and incubus is writing heavier music and we're hearing that and we're thinking that's a lot more interesting to swear. But then we don't fit on heavy shows because yeah. we're playing these funky parts and we're rapping sometimes. So we really didn't... You're really in, your own animal. Yeah, in this region, we, there wasn't a lane we could get into that would have helped us move further, faster. So yeah. Monty moved a lot faster, I felt like, because... And some of these other bands like Zox and bands that were doing really well in province because there was a lane for them set well, up then, with some other big bands. That but that they was could, big when like Fall Out Boy and stuff yeah. was coming out. And, and Warped Tour was a huge thing. But I can imagine that they had had an interesting time fitting into that kind of box because yeah. they were also like a lot heavier yeah. than a lot of those bands and a lot of those other pop punk or indie bands were becoming more um more mainstream sounding yeah. and I, I feel like monty never really did that got the mainstream sound up. i don't think so i mean it yeah, was always not. seemed like pretty heavy and like fast and energetic and really fun yeah i was really into it but like it never kind of went over to like the popular side gotcha so I don't, yeah, I don't know. I don't know if that's I accurate. Was, I was so outside of that scene or yeah. or those those worlds. We were five or ten years older than it. And yeah. so we weren't and we were doing we weren't doing that kind of music or even in that half of music. You know, it would have made yeah. sense for us ever to play with Saves the Day or something. Like yeah. that wouldn't have been our scene at all. We would have done very It's so slowly. interesting to me how how popular Groove Small was when I when I was in high school. But I think that's um, I think that small the town grand, is in the Cranston thing. Yeah, I think it feels that way. Yeah, because you see our stickers on every stop sign. Yeah, and because your friends all have the tape, and because when you play a show, maybe a lot of your friends are going or they know about it or something. Yeah, we felt big, but um, it was regional for sure. Yeah, and we learned that very clearly on our first tour. You yeah, know, like uh, first out of area tour, and and it was really Rhode Island and Massachusetts specific too. Like. Yeah. Connecticut was not a bigger thing for us for the most part. Like getting up to Maine was not a bigger thing. We had to work really hard to make something up there. Right. Um, getting to New York, not good for us as yeah. far as, you know, we're playing for 30 people at the most. So yeah. It's not the same as playing in Cranston and getting 200, 300 kids and yeah. at our peak, 800 kids or something. Yeah. Like. Thank you so much for listening to my conversation with Gavin Castleton. Please remember to check out the Patreon, patreon.com slash after the gig, and also email me at after the gig pod at gmail.com. I will see you next week. Thank you so much to all the patrons and everybody that is supported and everyone who's supporting artists and live music via live streams. <laughs> Um, have a great week. Happy Cinco de Mayo. See you next week. Bye. They say depression is a weight that pulls you down. But to be honest, I've not found that to be true. 
Around 